You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Don Guerra. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, December 6th, 2021. Later in the program, today's feature is a preview of tomorrow's interchange, presenting Fernando Pessoa with translator and biographer Richard Zenith. This will be the first of two episodes on the poet who is generally thought to be the greatest Portuguese poet of the 20th century. More in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, the Indiana University Board of Trustees voted on Friday to officially rename Jordan Avenue to Eagleson Avenue. More in the top half of our show, but first your daily headlines. At the Monroe County Health Department Town Hall held on December 1st, Dr. Carol Tulukian, Dr. Scott Moore and Dr. Jason Simmons shared information and answered questions residents have on the COVID-19 vaccination for children. Dr. Tulukian explained how the mRNA vaccine works to address parents' concern over how it would affect their children. A lot of people have concerns because this is an mRNA vaccine. mRNA stands for messenger RNA, and that's all It is. It's just the messenger. It's not the virus. It's not anything that can cause you to get infected. You can't transmit it to anyone. It's just a messenger. It tells your body to make the spike protein, which is not the infectious virus, not the virus, just the surface of the virus. And then your body can make antibodies. It does not interact with DNA. Uh, It cannot go in the nucleus and combine with your DNA. mRNA is a very short-lived thing. Okay. Uh, it's very short, it doesn't last long in your body. Uh, it doesn't interfere with fertility or pregnancy because it can't get into your DNA. And we've actually, everything's, everyone thinks this technology is so new, but we've, we've been, this has been going on for decades and these vaccines have been in development for de- decades. We just needed a really good pandemic to get it going. And that's basically what happened. So it's, it's a good vaccine. It doesn't cause disease. It, it, it doesn't change your DNA. It's, 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 but that's it, all it is. It's just, mess, it's just a messenger. Residents submitted questions about if their child should still get the vaccine if they have already had COVID. Dr. Simmons said that they should. Yes. So, yes, they, they should still get the, uh, the vaccine. Um, so uh, COVID, having it, COVID itself, the immunity uh, uh, varies for that. So you may not get uh, as long-lasting immunity as you might get from the vaccine. So there's no need to wait. Uh, the only contraindication um, um, is if you've had this MISC uh, that we will talk about later, that, that you should wait at least the 90 days after if you've had that, been diagnosed with that. Um, also, just waiting until your quarantine period is over. So if you've had COVID, uh, obviously you don't want to be out exposing people. So wait until you feel better. And, and But at that point, you can go ahead and get the COVID vaccine. Another question that was submitted asked if the adult dose of the vaccine is different from the child dose. Simmons answered that the child dose is smaller. 
it's a third of the adult dose. Uh, so it is a smaller dose. And as a result of that, I think we are seeing less side effects in the five to 11 age than we do in the older kids. Um, um, not that there can't be some side effects, but I think overall we definitely see less. And I've not had any of, from personal reports, any of my uh, patients report significant side effects from the, from the vaccine. Um, so the buffer, so tromethamine is the buffer. And so that is what allows the uh, vaccine to be stored at more, uh, at, at, at not as cold temperatures so we can keep them in our office uh, for a longer period of time. This video can be accessed on the Community Access and Television Services website. If individuals would like to hear the answers to all of the questions Monroe County residents submitted. The Indiana University Board of Trustees voted on Friday to rename the street that runs through campus from Jordan Avenue to Eagleson Avenue. Last year, a joint task force between the City of Bloomington and Indiana University completed a report with recommendations to rename Jordan Avenue. The task force recommended renaming the section of Jordan Avenue from Davis Street to 17th Street to Eagleson Avenue and the section from 17th Street to Fee Lane to Fuller Lane or Maddie Fuller Lane. The press release says that the task force considered names that reflected the city's values and principles, which leads to the Eagleson family name. Eagleson Avenue was named after Halson Vashon Eagleson, who was born into slavery in 1851. Eagleson escaped slavery, came to Bloomington in the 1880s, and became a well-known barber in the community. According to the university, several generations of Eaglesons have historical connections to both the city and the university. The street was originally named after IU's seventh president, David Starr Jordan, who was a major figure in the American eugenics movement, an ideology that influenced Nazi Germany during the Holocaust. In October 2020, the IU Board of Trustees voted to remove the surname of the former university president from Jordan Hall, Jordan Avenue Parking Garage, and the Jordan River. The university first voted to change the name because Jordan, quote, held views that conflicted fundamentally with the university's values in diversity and equity, end quote. Mayor John Hamilton said the old name goes against the city's commitment to promote inclusion and equity in the community, so he organized a task force to rename Jordan Avenue. The city and university each own part of the road, so members of each entity represented the task force. According to a press release, the city created a website where members of the public could submit names and provide comments. Also, members of the task force submitted names and conducted historical research on names provided by the community. The street name change will go into effect in February of next year. On December 2nd at the election board meeting, County Clerk Nicole Brown explained the ongoing debate with the Monroe County Commissioners over the future of Election Board Central. Where I was asking for the entirety of the Johnson Hardware building is that that needle has moved very little. You may recall from a recent work group meeting efforts made on the record to ensure that the Election Board understood the answer to the original request for the entirety of the Johnson Hardware building. From my perspective, there were only three possible options in terms of an answer to the question. The options as I see them are yes, no, or not yet. 
Chairwoman Rana, I appreciate your efforts to secure one of those responses. My takeaway was that there was nothing but obfuscation on the part of the board. They wouldn't say yes. They wouldn't say no. They wouldn't say not yet. I understood that the answer to the, the request was no for 2022, but of course that only gets us through 2022. It doesn't allow for us to do any advanced planning. Brown said that the commissioners have not given her as much time on their agenda as the other boards. Other presenters are encouraged to present as long as they like, but I am asked to be brief. If the topic is playgrounds or parks or projects that would make the county more beautiful, and I am not saying that those things are not important, you get the happy, smiley, agreeable commissioners nodding their heads in affirmation. When I present about expanding the footprint at the Johnson Hardware Building, I am met with the resting tough faces. Brown said she has been working on satellite sites, but has only gotten bipartisan approval for the Johnson Creamery Building. Brown acknowledged the board's past success with the 2020 election and said that they are moving forward with what the commissioners proposed to check out the Napa Auto Shop. Here's the truth. The 2020 elections were difficult. But I am proud to say that with all of the challenges we, challenges we faced, we still oversaw the second highest voter turnout for a presidential election in Monroe County. It was second only to the election in which Barack Obama was elected president. With all of that being said, I'll put you in remembrance that I am on record as being amenable to utilizing the Napa space for 2022 to store our voting equipment and to conduct poll worker training, and the space on the north end of the showers building for absentee ballot requests that come by mail. Following the work group meeting, the most recent one, Mr. Crone came by to inquire as to when we might want him to make arrangements for us to see the Napa building. I presume that the most logical time would be following this meeting so that we could recess rather than adjourn and discuss the security needs for that space, and I look forward to meeting with whomever is available to do so. The election board will meet again on January 6th. Today's feature is a preview of tomorrow's interchange. Presenting Fernando Pessoa with translator and biographer Richard Zenith. This will be the first of two episodes on the poet who is generally thought to be the greatest Portuguese poet of the 20th century. In this show, the focus will be on Pessoa's breakout year of 1915, when he published several pieces in two issues of the Portuguese modernist journal Orfeo and introduces one of his major heteronyms, Alvaro de Campos. In this clip, Zenith offers the world historical context in which this happens. Presenting Pessoa on Interchange airs tomorrow, Tuesday, at 6 p.m. on WFHB. The full program will be available at wfhb.org or wherever you listen to your podcast.
again, this is a good section of the book because it does detail this kind of, I think you term it a spiritual imperialism or something of that nature. But, you know, Pessoa, I think, tries to defend or defends, I guess, uh, a country like Germany that has the culture that it has, that it has a right to sort of advance its culture. And I'm not sure if that's a defense of violent, uh, you know, overthrow of other countries or not, but it's a defense of a particular kind of uh, world culture that deserves to be what dominant in the world. Uh, so, in a sense, as you talk about him perhaps not caring necessarily about colonial Africa, it's because there's no culture there. You know, no no need to take culture there, etc. Well, that's an interesting question. Well, he, yeah, he certainly didn't feel too much the need to take culture there. You know, take European culture there, which is not to say that he was concerned about preserving African culture. You know, so was very uh, European in his in his upbringing. The school he went to in Durban, there was only white children who went to the school. He received a very English education. So one could argue that he thought it was best not to interfere, perhaps in, in, in certain cultures, unless you had something to offer. So I don't know, maybe the, maybe the idea of imposing European culture, inflicting whatever, European culture in, in African nations. Pessoa doesn't seem to really have pronounced himself on that, on that question. Maybe he wouldn't have been so opposed. Mm -hmm. But in, in terms of Germany, he, f he did admire German culture, you know, the philosophers, musicians, Beethoven, Wagner, and so forth. Again, this is all part of this rather poetic idea that has to do with his, his imperialism that Germany because of this culture, did have the right to spread that culture, even through war. However, I said Pessoa, but, but actually only part of Pessoa thought that way. <laughs> Pessoa in, invented a, a heteronym in uh, 1915. His major heteronyms, you already mentioned, Alvaro de Campos, and there was also Alberto Caero and Ricardo Reis, emerged in 1914. But then in 1915, another one that emerges, Antonio Mora, was a uh, defender of neo-paganism. And this neo-paganism had a lot to do with Pessoa's admiration of Greek culture. Uh, so, the, so the Greeks were pagan, and uh, so Pessoa had this idea that it would be wonderful to uh, revive the pagan spirit mm. in Portugal particularly, and also elsewhere. Through Antonio Mora, there's this all these essays that are written promoting the, this idea of, of neo-paganism. And Antonio Mora also was the author of a so-called dissertation in favor of Germany, so to, took the side of Germany in the war. However, Pessoa himself, himself tended to side with the Allies, somewhat reluctantly. So you, you find in Pessoa, he, he takes conflicting positions, and sometimes heteronyms are used for that, or he, sometimes he doesn't even need heteronyms. Pessoa in 1915 wrote actually his first piece of journalism. He, he, he wrote quite a lot of articles about varied topics throughout his adult life beginning in 1915. And in, in the first article he wrote, he said that a intellectual has a cerebral obligation to change opinion several times in the same day. Mm -hmm. right. So Pessoa was highly flexible mentally and was always changing opinion. Pessoa was was always coming up with these experiments. Each of the heteronym was a kind of experiment mm -hmm. and some of these ideas like his uh, cultural imperialism or spiritual imperialism. They were, they were experiments in a sense. 
Well, let's turn back to the the reason that I was uh, excited by this year in the first place, which was the literary magazine that you talked about. And in uh, in 1915, uh, there are lots of literary magazines in the U.S. and U.K. The little magazines uh, that I think they were called at the time, things like uh, Blast, and uh, I don't know when others started. Alfred Kramborg's journal poetry started around that point as well, 1913, maybe something like that. So this is an era of the little magazine, right? Uh, I guess this is a, a a big part of modernism at the time as well. That's true. And there were also uh, these little magazines in, in uh, Portugal. The magazine that Pessoa and his friends started called Orfeo was was by no means the first little magazine to come along. There, there had been others. Mm. Orfeo also only had two issues that were actually published. So these they tended to be ephemeral, these small magazines. But Orfeo was, was just different because of its content. The project was to promote young, unknown, little published writers. And there was also a, a Brazilian connection. There was a couple of Brazilian poets involved. So there was this idea of embracing the Portuguese language, both through, through Brazil and Portugal. But also the, the type of literature that was, was published was, was quite different. And, and Orfeo really was the publication that brought literary modernism to, to Portugal. So it is comparable with those other modernist journals. Um, Pessoa himself was aware of these other journals um, and reading English, yes. et cetera. So there is, there is a, I guess, that sort of wish to you know, have a communication in some sense with the spirit of the times, I guess. That's right. And Pessoa also, he invented his own literary movements. Rather than simply you know, adopting, say, you know, futurism or, or other movements from, from France and elsewhere, uh, he invented, he and his friends, there was a movement called Swampism, and it gets its name from a poem that Pessoa wrote in, in 1913 called Swamps. And it's a very kind of ultra-symbolist kind of poem, and this Swampism was uh, symbolism kind of on drugs taken farther. So <laughs> symbolism, I'm talking about this hazy association where you have a sense of something beyond, all this, some, some beyond about what you're actually writing about. Mm -hmm. So you have all these strange metaphors and descriptions and twilight atmospheres and everything is indefinite. So I invented another movement called intersectionism, uh, which you can think of as cubism, perhaps apply to literature, where you have uh, these very different planes intersecting with each other, and then also sensationism. And uh, so there, the, the important thing was to uh, be completely aware of sensation, to feel everything mm -hmm. as, as, as much as possible. So Pessoa uh, wrote many pages to describe these different movements, right. and Orfeo helped to you know, promote this, this kind of writing. Orfeo, again, I think the first issue is late March 1915, modernist in intent. Uh, it's also pretty fully Pessoa and, and Campos. Um, in terms of what's in the magazine, of course, there's other writing, and we'll 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 mention those as well. But um, as you say, at some point, it's his literary coming out. Let's go back a little bit and talk about these ideas of heteronyms. You know, it's one. It's obviously one of the major characteristics of Pessoa, as you've already mentioned. But uh, and you've already mentioned the three main heteronyms. Uh, Pessoa himself can be, I don't know if you would call it a heteronym or not. Uh, it's a question of, you know, when Pessoa writes as Pessoa, what does that even mean? I suppose that's well, a fair and, question. <laughs> yeah. It, well, in fact, that's uh, something scholars you know, debate about. Yeah. Uh, when writing under his own name, 
Is Pessoa any more reliable or is that any more genuine than when he's writing under uh, some other name? Right. And, um, and the short answer is uh, no, it's not, not Marvel. <laughs> right. Not Marvel. right, right. Let's uh, will you clarify really quickly too, uh, because you know, I think most people would say, why aren't these pseudonyms? And you know, we need to go uh, some way to, to be sure about what a heteronym is. It's more than just a, another name. Right. So Pessoa, for his heteronyms, uh, invented actually other personalities. Um, they had different ways of writing, different ways of looking at the world, uh, different religious and political views. So the writing differed considerably. And so that's why Pessoa felt that they weren't mere pseudonyms because it wasn't just the name that changed, but uh, they were conceived as completely other. And they had their own biographies even. That's right. Pessoa invented biographies for yeah. them as well. B- birth you dates know. and death dates and everything. Yes. And even astrological charts. Right. Pessoa right. was a very proficient astrologer. And that's actually an activity that got going in 1915. Mm-hmm. The big year. Yes. That's right. Big year. <laughs> Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues around the Midwest. KiteLine airs at 5.30 p.m. on each Friday on WFHB Community Radio. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Brittany Pula, an indigenous 21-year-old woman in Oklahoma, is facing four years in prison for having a miscarriage, something that happens in about one in six pregnancies. The Pula verdict is part of a nationwide trend of criminalizing pregnancy. It's especially acute for women of color and indigenous women like Pula, a member of the Comanche Nation. Pula's miscarriage last January was bad enough but the institution she came in contact with afterwards compounded the situation. She told the hospital staff about her history of drug use, a revelation that was critical for sound treatment. Rather than keep the information confidential, the hospital reported her to law enforcement. By May, Pula was in jail for manslaughter. She stayed there until her trial, unable to afford the $20,000 bond. The medical examiner in the case didn't cite drug use as a cause of the miscarriage, which occurred at about 17 weeks of pregnancy. Moreover, no law in Oklahoma says miscarriage is a crime. Despite science and the law, the judge told the jury to view the fetus as a person and consider manslaughter charges. After a trial that lasted one day, Pula faces a four-year prison sentence. Pula's case is part of a disturbing pattern. There are at least nine other open cases in Oklahoma that criminalize pregnancy. In the last 15 years, over 1,200 people have been arrested in this country for trumped-up pregnancy offenses, mostly poor women, women of color, and those who use drugs. The number of migrants being monitored under a surveillance program launched as an alternative to traditional detention facilities has grown astronomically during the Biden administration. A record number 136,026 immigrants are now being monitored under Immigration and Custom Enforcement's, or ICE, Intensive Supervision Appearance Program, ISAP. 
up from 86,000 at the beginning of the year. ISAP was launched in 2004 as a way to monitor immigrants in removal proceedings through a mix of home and field office visits, court tracking, and electronic surveillance. ISAP requires enrolled individuals to either wear ankle monitors, use a voice reporting system, or download an app called SmartLink. All three tools have been developed by BI Incorporated, a subsidiary of the private prison trust, the GEO Group, that has been awarded every ISAP contract since the program's inception. The poll, done in collaboration with Freedom for Immigrants and the Immigrant Defense Project, also found nearly 90% of respondents reporting that the ankle shackles impacted their mental health negatively. The proportion of immigrants in ISAP subjected to ankle monitors has dropped, and SmartLink has become the tool of choice, with close to 60% of immigrants in ISAP using it as of last month. The application is used for photo check-ins, where immigrants are required to take a picture of themselves at any given time that is then matched to the one taken at enrollment using facial recognition software. Immigrants spend an average of 615.1 days in the program, despite the recent influx in participants and a requirement that ICE review the terms of supervision for individuals every 90 days. And while it is billed as an alternative to detention, the number of immigrants in ICE custody has grown almost twofold to over 22,000 at the same time that ISAP has ballooned. More than 100 federal prison workers have been arrested, convicted, or sentenced for crimes since the start of 2019, including a warden indicted for sexual abuse, an associate warden charged with murder, guards taking cash to smuggle drugs and weapons, and supervisors stealing property such as tires and tractors. An Associated Press investigation found that the Federal Bureau of Prisons, with an annual budget of nearly $8 billion, is a hotbed of abuse, graft, and corruption, and has turned a blind eye to employees accused of misconduct. In some cases, the agency has failed to suspend officers who themselves had been arrested for crimes. Two-thirds of the criminal cases against Justice Department personnel in recent years have involved federal prison workers who account for less than one-third of the department's workforce. Federal prison workers in nearly every job function have been charged with crimes. In one case, the agency allowed an official at a federal prison in Mississippi, whose job it was to investigate misconduct of other staff members, to remain in his position after he was arrested on charges of stalking and harassing fellow employees. At the highest ranks, the warden of a federal women's prison in Dublin, California, was arrested in September and indicted this month on charges that he molested an inmate multiple times, scheduled times when he demanded she undress in front of him, and amassed a slew of nude photos of her on his government-issued phone. One-fifth of the Bureau of Prison cases involved crimes of a sexual nature, second only to cases involving smuggled contraband. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky-Schneider and myself, in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Doug Storm. KiteLine is produced by Maya Beach. Our theme music is produced by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. 
Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young for WFHB. I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. You can be part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer 